Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Well, let me welcome you as well to Westminster Chapel Online. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Howard. It's my privilege to lead the team at Westminster Chapel. And we are a church of more than 50 different nationalities. We're so thankful to God for our diversity. So I thought it would be right to stand uh, in front of this uh, wonderful map of the world to at least represent that. And you're joining us today to celebrate and remember Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. Day one of Easter week. We call it Palm Sunday. And Jesus's entry was really unusual. And that's typical of how the first uh, century four biographers of Jesus's life, we call them the gospel writers, describe Jesus as someone for whom contradictory things, they come together. Things that are normally irreconcilable, that just don't make sense, they, they actually come together in Jesus. So think of things like um, oil and water um, coming together. That, 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 how, does that, how is that possible? Or um, like someone does in our staff team, they put honey and marmite, two things that just don't belong together, together on their pancake. I mean, oh, that's yuck. <laughs> who would do that? Well, you can take a guess about who that is on our team. Um, other things that don't belong together, according to my research, were Taylor Swift and boyfriends, but hey, no... No more comment on that from me. Jesus is truly exceptional and extraordinary. He's described as sort of bringing contradictory things together. He's portrayed as a living, breathing paradox, both man and God at the same time, yet meek and humble, yet awesome and mighty and majestic and powerful. And this is interesting if you think about nature or the science that you were taught of the paradoxes or antimonies that are out there in creation. Like light, for example. Light is both a particle and a wave at the same time. How how does that make sense? Well, I think it makes sense because Jesus is God. He made everything and creation reflects its creator. But you may be there at home already thinking, how can I trust these accounts? Uh, maybe they were written hundreds of years later. Well, I want you to know that actually, actually they weren't. Um, you could go to the Chester Beatty Library in Dublin and there you would see Papyrus 45, uh, which contains the first century four Gospels, these biographies I've mentioned already. And that is dated, this document is dated to about 200 to 250 AD. It's a copy of a copy of a copy, um, but we understand the accuracy with other fragments that we have of, of that copy is very, very high. Non-Christian scholars, even the agnostic scholar Bart Ehrman would date Luke's biography, which was read to us chapter 19 a bit earlier, he, he would date it to around 80 to 85 AD. Uh, others would date it a bit earlier, but that's around 50 years after these events were taking place, which is still within living memory of humans who'd still be alive and be able to give first-hand eyewitness accounts of what took place. I mean, we, for example, would still have people alive from the Second World War able to testify about what it was like 
And that was 75 years ago. And we don't actually have an oral culture tradition. We've got so much print forms of media, unlike it was in the first century, where they were phenomenally good at preserving stories through their oral tradition. More than that, though, these first century biographers, they get the details correct. Things like the names. We have been able to show that the names that they record in the gospel are the right names for that place and time period. If you were to ask me what are the, the most popular names in France a um, hundred years ago, I would have no clue about that. And maybe there's been some research recently that's documented that thanks to the web. But back then they would have no way to access that kind of information. They also get the geography right, the place names right. And there's a good example of this for Luke in chapter 29, where he refers to Bethany and Bethphage. Little villages that would be not known really to most people. There's a little detail there which shows you that they couldn't have just read about this from other sources. Those sources didn't exist. They must have been alive at the time. They got these details that are just correct for the first century. In fact, archaeologists have found, looking at Luke's um, biography, and then there's a part two to that, called the Book of Acts, that together in his references to 52 um, countries, sorry, 32 countries, 54 cities, I think it is, and nine islands, doesn't make a single mistake. It's all first century accurate. That's pretty amazing. Now, I could go on to tell you about why I think these documents are reliable, but I don't want to do that today. I just want to give you enough so you can see that they are trustworthy before we move on to ask the big question. And that question which comes out of this passage, and it really comes out of the whole of the New Testament, is who is Jesus? I'd say that may just be the most important question that you really could ever ask yourself or another person. Jesus is the most important person in the world. You know, our calendar is divided <laughs> based on his life. You know, BC, before Christ, AD, after death, Anno Domini, um, in the day of the Lord. Uh, everything is sort of hinging around him in that sense. Uh, so many films, more than 100 films made about Jesus. Um, people have sung about Jesus. Uh, you've got uh, folk star Bob Dylan. You've got uh, Kanye West today singing about Jesus. And different opinions about who really was he. Dan Brown, who wrote The Da Vinci Code, says he's just an amazingly charismatic man. Bono, lead singer of U2, says, I do believe he is the Son of God. He's divine. So who do you say Jesus is? It's easy to miss who Jesus is. That's what happened for the first century people. Um, as Jesus was arriving into Jerusalem, the crowds, they thought Jesus was just an earthly leader come to liberate them from Roman rule. The religious elites, the leaders there, they just thought Jesus was an imposter. They wanted to destroy him, but they were actually finding it really hard to do that because verse 48 says that people were hanging on Jesus's every word. There was something majestically glorious about Jesus. People were drawn to him like thirsty people to an oasis for the for his words of life it is easy to miss jesus a lawyer friend tells a story of how he was out at uh, hampstead heath one time having a picnic with some friends and a little girl comes running up to their party and then is shortly followed by the mum and he has a long conversation with the mum 
And eventually, after the mum's gone, taking the child with her, his friends, who'd remained silent throughout that time, turn and say to him, Do you know who you were talking to? My friend's like, No. And they say, That was Kate Winslet, Oscar winning Titanic fame. My friend's like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I get it. Um, he knew who Kate Winslet was. He'd had the privilege, I don't know what you call it, of seeing the film Titanic. Um, and, and he would have recognised her if she was wearing makeup with her full entourage on a movie set. But without all of that stuff, doing normal, ordinary things, he didn't recognise her. And so it is with Jesus. God came and he took on the form of man. He laid aside his glory and his majesty and came in the appearance of a man so he could sympathise with you, so he can identify with you, so he knows exactly what it's like to be you, to suffer on the, from the inside out. But it means that because he did that, that many people just only saw him as a man. They didn't see the fullness of who Jesus really is. And it can be like that for us as well. Because of our own kind of self-absorption, our, our, our pride blinds us. We just want Jesus, if anything, just to be our own personal whatever deliverer. It's about me, me, me. And it blinds us to the full reality of who Jesus really is. And this is true even of Christians. I think if you were to ask a Christian who is Jesus, they would say, well, Jesus, he's God. But what does that really mean? Now, I think some would say, well, Jesus is my friend, they mean by that. Um, and there's some truth in that. Jesus is the friend of sinners. And hey, we're all sinners, myself included. We're all kind of leveled out by that. But there's others who would say, we should be in awe and reverence of Jesus. No, we should be holy fear of him, you know, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. How do, you, how do you reconcile these things? Well, I don't think you have to choose between them. I think the glory of God and Jesus is in them coming together. And when we see Jesus in more of the fullness of who he is, that'll make us want to worship. And right now what we need more than ever is to see Jesus. I think of Peter, one of Jesus's closest followers when they're out in, in the boat, it's late, it's dark at night and they see Jesus walking on the water and Peter wants to go out and join and Jesus calls him out and Peter's walking on the water towards Jesus but then he notices the storm, the wind and the waves that are going on over there and he, he looks away at Jesus and as he starts to do that he starts to sink and yes Jesus rescues him but I think the point for us is that we need to keep our eyes fixed on our Saviour Jesus at this time. There's so much scary noise going on all around us through COVID-19 right now. The storm is raging over there, but we need to stay fixed on Jesus, to gaze in his beautiful face, that the things of earth may grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So we're going to do that now with just time to look at two paradoxes about Jesus. The first of those is his meekness and his majesty. So Jesus's meekness and majesty. You could also call this Jesus and 
the virgin donkey. You see, I think there were most likely to be two processions entering into Jerusalem back around about the time of the start of this um, Easter week. There was one procession coming in from the west and it was the Roman procession. It was Pontius Pilate coming in in Roman trump and triumphant glory. Um, you know, there were cavalry on horses and soldiers marching. There was armour and weaponry. There was the beating of drums. And it was a big, loud shout of human might and human power. Here am I. Look at me. Aren't I great? And then coming in from the east was Jesus riding on a donkey. And his followers weren't waving swords, they were waving palm branches. And all of this was incredibly powerfully prophetic. And it's a great study if you want to do something, you've got the time on your hands to study the significance of donkeys and the significance of this kind of entry with palm branch reception. Jesus was totally different, coming in, riding in, in meekness in humility to Jerusalem and in this moment yes he's receiving some form of worship or adulation not that Jesus in any way needs this he's God he's complete he doesn't need our worship I think he's doing this to absolutely make sure that they will kill him he's doing this to turn that green-eyed little monster into an uncontrollable beast of envy in the religious leaders' hearts that they would make sure that he gets crucified. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to die, to die for you, for me. That who really is this rider on the donkey? Well, there are some clues in the passage that help us to answer that question. The first is, he seems to know everything about anything. He knows exactly where the donkey would be. Wow! That's, that's amazing, isn't it? That over there, go, you guys go over there, you'll find a donkey there. That's omniscience. That's, that's incredible, this knowledge that he has. Now, we might try and explain that and say, maybe this was a disciple, maybe he knew that, maybe he planted the horse, in a, the donkey rather, in, in advance. All of that, no. I think this is an example of Jesus's omniscience. And then there's the power of his words. Jesus says, go and tell them that the Lord has need of it and, and they'll, they'll, they'll give you the donkey. Wow. You see, I think if I was to send two members of Westminster Chapel staff team to your home to say, Howard has need of your car, you are to give it to him now, or your motorbike or beloved bicycle, whatever it is. But I think if I did that, you would say something probably inappropriate that I can't say right now. <laughs> um, you wouldn't like it, right? Jesus's words have a kind of power and authority that human words don't. Jesus is, after all, the word of God. He was there at the beginning of creation. <laughs> creation was spoken out. God's power, his voice spoke reality, creation all into existence. And then there's, there's the donkey. This is a virgin donkey. That means it's, it's never been ridden on before. 
I think we're meant to think in in there, but back to yes, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, but also this is about Jesus' entry into the world. That the awesome, almighty, powerful God shrunk down so small as to become a single fertilized egg to, to grow inside Mary's womb. The poet John Donne says, yeah, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. The extraordinary humility of God to come in such a way. But there's the untamed nature of this animal as well, that it's never been ridden on before, that it should be bucking and fighting and resisting its rider, and yet it's submitting to Jesus. Why? Because all of creation submits to Jesus. Jesus is the creator of the world. Everything should bow before him. He made it all. We see that he can calm storms just with his words. He can multiply bread to feed thousands of people. This is who is riding in on the donkey. And he is riding in to die for you. It's an extraordinary example of how he's using his power, that Jesus isn't being forced into this, coerced, manipulated. These aren't people trying to kill him and he's got no power. He is in 100% control. He's all-powerful, and yet he's choosing to use all of his power to fulfil his plan to rescue you. In these uncertain times we live in, that is a wonderful truth to hold on to about the character of God, that he is there and his goal is to deliver and to rescue us. But where are we in the story? I think at this point in the story, we are probably the people who are maybe in the crowd. We are confused. We are lost. We're blind. We're not quite seeing yet the fullness of Jesus. And what's wonderful is that Jesus still comes. He doesn't turn around and go, I'm not, I'm not going to bother to save that lot. He keeps coming. He keeps coming. In spite of our blindness, such is his grace. That's the first paradox, meekness and majesty. The second, the final paradox, is his justice and his mercy. You could also call this paradox compassion and cleansing, or anger and anguish. In verse 41, we see that Jesus, God, is is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And I think it shows us that God loves cities. He loves cities because cities are full of people. And cities are also places where the poor are are oppressed most often, maybe disproportionately more than other places uh, in our societies. And so God has a heart for cities to see that transformation, to see them flourish. I think it's why God is calling people to cities like our city of London to stay and to serve rather than to move out, to move in, to help be a witness of his love and his glory in cities. We see the heart of God in him weeping. Some people today would say God doesn't have emotions. Um, Clearly, I think this shows us that he does. Sure, his emotions are different to our emotions. They're, They're much, much purer. But God, Jesus here is weeping. It reminds me of another scene in the biographies of Jesus' life where he's weeping. When he's weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus. Or is he? 
Because it's very strange, this scene where it says Jesus wept and he weeps outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who's been dead for days, yet he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He'll see his friend again very soon. Why is he weeping? Jesus is weeping, I believe, because he is looking at his friend's tomb and he is seeing every tomb. He's seeing every grave. He's seeing every funeral, past, present and future. He's seeing your funeral. He is looking at the havoc and suffering that death causes upon all people. And he is weeping in anguish at, at the harm it does. And this compassion fills his heart to take action and he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead and in doing so kind of issues a death warrant for himself from the religious leaders. Jesus is weeping here in verse 41 for a slightly different reason. He's weeping over the blindness of people, his people. He's weeping that the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace, isn't truly receiving and embracing the Prince of Peace. He's weeping that, they, that the people of God don't know their own Messiah, their own King of Kings, come to, to rescue them and celebrate them. They just don't get it. He's weeping over this blindness. They should have known better. God had brought prediction after prediction after prediction to them that this would happen, but they were, they were, they were blissfully unaware. And so they were going to have to face the consequences of God's, God's judgment. I mean, how else is God going to deal with their wrongdoing, of their injustice? Does he just turn a blind eye to it? Does he just ignore it, do nothing about it? No, that wouldn't be just. God has to do something about it. If he's to be a good and holy, just God, he's got to judge it. And so Jesus is weeping that they're going to have to suffer the judgment, the righteous judgment of, of God if they don't embrace him. If they don't listen to his words. He's weeping about their blindness. They just didn't get it. If you look at the, the subsequent verses, if you look at verses 45 to 46 here, you can see that they have turned the temple, the place where people would have come to meet with God. And in the outer court was the place, only the part where Gentiles, non-Jews, were allowed to come with Jews to be still and to pray and to meet with God. But they made that into a noisy marketplace where they were profiteering and exploiting the poor and the foreigner, selling thousands of sacrificial animals, dodgy deals, extortionate exchange rates going on. It was awful. And so Jesus comes and his righteous anger is stirred up and he, he gets destroyed. He removes it all out of the way. They get a foretaste, a little trailer I think of Judgment Day part one coming. And Jesus predicts this. In verse 43, he predicts AD 70, a judgment that is going to come on the people of God, on Jerusalem itself, where the Romans are going to come in this time and they are going to completely trash and destroy the temple. That temple physical structure is going to be no more. And according to ancient Historian Josephus, 1.1 million Jewish people will die and did die. Jesus is predicting all of that and those who would hear his voice, those who would listen to him, Jesus' followers, he wants us to go up to the hills in those days, go, go get out there. And they did and they were rescued. They were, they were safe from that. Wow, because they obeyed Jesus' words. I wonder if 
the coronavirus isn't a wake-up call for us, isn't a trailer for Judgment Day Part 2 coming. And it will come. There is a day coming where we will all have to stand before our Maker, our Creator, and give an account for the way that we have lived. How will we deal with the wrongs, the, the injustices that we have caused, small and many and great, that we are a party to, we are responsible for? The only way that we can find out of that is to obey and trust in the words of Jesus, is to put our faith in him. There was something very shocking about what Jesus was doing, cleansing the temple. I don't think we quite fully understand that. We might relate to say that their, their trading, their money, their, their financial kind of work was being disrupted by Jesus. But there's something more that relates to the cultural dynamic between Jew and Gentile back then. Jesus would have appeared to have been on the side of the Gentiles. He would have been like, how dare he? Does he think those Gentile, that Gentile scum can come and worship in the outer courts of our temple? That was always God's intention, was for all peoples of every colour and every creed to have the opportunity to come into the presence of God and to have faith in him and to meet with him. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, we see this in Eden. God creates the first temple, Eden. All the other temples, in a way, are modelled on this temple and some of the symbolism comes out of Eden. And Adam and Eve are there and they rebel against God. They go their own way, representing all human beings. And they have to be taken out of the Garden of Eden. And they're not allowed back in. There's an angel put in the way with a flaming sword to prevent them from getting back in. And the kind of logic of that, the kind of follow through of that comes with the tabernacle and then the temple and the sacrificial system being established so that you can only come into the most holy place and then there's the holy place and then there's the outer court in the temple. You, you could only come into that most holy place to meet with God like Adam and Eve did before they were kicked out of Eden once a year, only if you are a high priest, only if you've gone through the ritual purification requirements, only if there had been a blood sacrifice of an animal. Justice required a sacrifice. That's what's necessary. There must be some kind of punishment, otherwise God is not just. How would you think if I was to say, well, your child gets killed, and I was to say, just forget about it, it doesn't matter. Let it go. The guy killed us, so what? No, justice requires a punishment, a penalty to be, to be done. The same is true with God. And Jesus understands this so well. Je Jesus gets this. Jesus knows that the, the judgment must come. The sword must fall on someone. And this is why he is sensing that anguish. He is weeping over the very reality of what is necessary to save humanity. It's almost like it's there in his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his prayers, praying, if there's any other way, Father, take the cup of wrath from me. May I not have to drink it all up. But then he comes to the point and he says, if it's your will, I'll do it. And Jesus surrenders his life to rescue us as a ransom. He allows the sword of judgment, the sword of justice to come down on him so it might not have to come down on us so that we can be free and we can come into the presence of God and meet with him and know him and have fellowship and joy and delight with him. One 
preacher, though, puts it like this. He says that when the sword came down on Jesus' body, it broke Jesus' physical body, but the sword itself was broken. The, the great preacher John Owen says, it's the death of death in the death of Christ. Death is extinguished by Christ if we put our faith in him. He's paid it all. It is finished through his work on the cross, dying to take away the judgment that we deserve for our wrongdoing and sin. So there is no barrier, no blockage for us to have full fellowship with Jesus. At Jesus' cross and his resurrection, we, we see this sense of heartfelt anguish coming together with his righteous anger in order to save and rescue us. If you like, justice and love come together to meet, to kiss a guilty world, to set us free. And when we start to see how these different attributes of God that seem irreconcilable coming together in him, for what? For us? For our benefit? For our salvation? And all we have to do is trust and believe him? We don't have to be a good person? It should make us want to worship him because it means nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's all his work. It doesn't depend on us. He's done what we could never do. Wow. It should cause us to respond rightly. I want to finish with four applications for us, four responses. First, it, it should make us want to surrender to Jesus to become completely humble in him, to be like the donkey, submitted to his service, to let Jesus ride on our backs as we walk into Jerusalem with him, as we are willing to die to self for him. The second thing is we should weep over our own sin, our own blindness, our own inability to, to really <laughs> know the fullness and see the fullness of God. And we should weep at his love of what it cost him to rescue us the third thing is that we should weep for others we should feel that same anguish that God feels for those who who are lost without him who must face judgment without him and that should lead us into the fourth thing to pray to pray that hundreds thousands would come to know him especially at this time when our world is being shaken, God is giving a wake-up call for people to come back in repentance and faith in him. I want to take this time now to pray. Pray for you and pray for those who yet don't know Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, on this Palm Sunday, as we remember you entering into Jerusalem, I pray right now you would enter the hearts and the minds of people listening here. Come and meet with them, God. Come and bring peace. Come and bring joy. Come and bring life. Come and bring hope. I pray, God, for each of us to be able to surrender more deeply, to walk in humility with you, that you would be able to ride in on us into dangerous and harmful situations to bring your life and light. And Lord, I pray for those who don't yet know you. Open their eyes. Please, God, draw them to yourself at this time, that they might escape judgment 
and they might see how glorious and beautiful you are. Majestic and meek, full of justice, but full of mercy for any who would bow the knee to you. Amen. Let's worship God. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.